you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Being outnumbered brings a plethora of emotions and responses uh, to people. Much of it is based on who we are and what the situation is. And sometimes, even though when we may have faced overwhelming odds on one occasion, we may find ourselves depressed and demoralized on a separate occasion. So, for instance, um, as we took a look last time, Elijah challenged, because God had him to, challenged 850 prophets of Baal to a fire-off, if you will. And he did so with great confidence, and he mocked the other side, and he won a great victory because apparently Baal, who doesn't exist at all, as he mocked them, is either on a trip or asleep and just never paid attention to them. But the God that we serve and we, we worship, he brought fire down and consumed uh, them all, all the offering, and then the prophets were, were killed. And shortly after that, because a queen had ordered his death, he hid out in a cave and was depressed, even though he had just won a great spiritual and actual victory. But he felt like he was all alone, that he was the only one left, and, and God told him in a still small voice that, no, he wasn't all alone, and there were a hundred prophets who had not bowed the knee to Baal. We're going to see another situation where there appears to be an overwhelming situation where the enemy is, is so large and vast in numbers that defeat seems all but imminent. And so in 2 Kings chapter 6, starting with verse 8, it says, now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he uh, counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be our camp. And the man of God would send word to Israel, saying, Beware that you do not uh, pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down here. And the king of Israel sent to the, to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him so that he guarded his home there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? So basically, the king of Aram, the Arameans, was warring against Israel, and he had planned to move his army to certain places to strike the army of Israel when they were unaware. But Elisha knew exactly where the movements were, and so he would warn Israel, and they would move their armies appropriately. And so every time this happened, and as the Scripture says, it happened more than once or twice, so it kept repeatedly happening. So the king said, there is a spy in the camp. Somebody is telling 
the king of Israel to move his troops, who is it? Who is this spy? And one of his servants uh, said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He's saying that Elisha knows so much about what you're planning that even your confidence in your own bedroom where it would be entirely private and there wouldn't be any spies, he tells it to the king of Israel. So it's not a spy, it's the man of God who is telling him these secrets. So he said, go and see where he is that I may sin and take him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dotham. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So I want you to see this. The city is like down in a, in a valley type of situation. And there are mountains around. And he has sent his, his army there to capture one man. That's how important this king considered Elisha to be. That he sent his army to capture one man. And to make sure he didn't escape, he surrounded Dotham so that he would make sure he captured Elisha. Now the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servants said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now I'm going to come back to this question for you and me. But his his servant goes, we are outnumbered, we are outpositioned, we're not men of war, they are, they have chariots. So in our day, it would be like having the infantry and tanks there. You, you're going to lose that battle. So the man goes, what are we going to do? It doesn't seem like there's any possibility of escape. Notice what Elisha says. So he answered, do not fear those who are with, or those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Notice Elisha didn't pray that God would send an army. He didn't pray that God would deliver him. He already knew God had delivered. He goes, there are more with us than against us. Yeah, there's the army circling this city with chariots, but there are more with us. Notice what he then says. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, I pray, open the, his eyes that he may see. He didn't say, God, deliver us. He goes, no, God, I already know you have, but he doesn't see it. So God opened his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eye and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, this is not the first time Elisha has seen chariots of fire. This is the, at least the second time. For the first time Elisha saw them was he was passed uh, to be the successor to Elijah. And Elisha's request of, of Elijah was that he wanted a double portion of what Elijah had. And Elijah said, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to, but 
The only way you're going to get this is if you see me depart. And so Elijah was moving around at his last days, going to place to place. And he would keep telling Elisha, stay here. Elisha, no, I'm not staying. I'm going with you. And no matter where Elijah went, Elisha followed. And then there came a time when chariots of fire came and ushered Elijah to heaven. And Elisha took Elisha's mantle and became the prophet. So he had seen chariots of fire, but he saw it as a, if you will, an uber to heaven. He took him to heaven, and Elisha became that successor who received that double portion. So now he's seen chariots of fire again. Now, chariots, pretty impressive. Chariots of fire, much more impressive. And so he sees this, and finally the servant eyes are open. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Notice Elisha's response is not, oh me, oh my, what do I do? But he prays. He prays, God, my servant's eyes were blind, now they're open. I want you to blind the enemy. And God does. And when they had come, and Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. So not only did he, God, blind them physically, he blinded them in the sense of they just followed what Elisha told them to do. That you're lost. You're in the wrong spot. Let me take you to where you need to be. And he did. He says, and when they had come to Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So again, Elisha prayed. One, he prayed to open his servant's eyes. Then he prayed to blind the enemy. And then he prays again to open the eyes of the enemy. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria, which means they're in enemy territory. They had went to seize one man, and now they find themselves in enemy territory, in the midst of the people of God, in a very disadvantageous place. Then the king of Israel went and saw them and said to Elijah, My father, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? It's like, I have this perfect opportunity to get rid of my enemy. I will kill them and decimate his army. Notice what Elisha's response is. He answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those who have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? He's going, wait a minute. If we had engaged in the rules of war, and this is well before all the treaties and whatever, but human existence says, when somebody surrenders and when you capture somebody, you don't kill them. You're supposed to save them because they become your captive. And so Elisha's response is, they're your captives in a war. You didn't have to use your soul or your bow, 
but God has given them to you in your hand. So, so instead of that, he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Not only are they going to feed them and, and give them drink, they're going to release them to their master, which you would think, well, wait a minute. We've captured them. They've been a problem all this time. Why would we release them? We would at least keep them as, as captives of war, prisoners of war, and we will just hold on to them. But in a sense, so he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And when they went to their master, and the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. God turned this situation from being outnumbered armies and chariots and a man and his servant to a situation where not only was the army captured, but they never had to fight them again. Outnumbered, and yet they weren't. There were more with them than against them. And so often in our Christian experience, we feel like, oh, woe is me. Nobody understands me, and nobody understands how difficult it is to be a Christian, all things. And, and we, we feel like we're alone, and we're not. Each of these stories that I have shared with you over the past several weeks have been victorious stories. We've seen where three Hebrew young men were thrown into a fire and the fire did not consume them, did not affect them, not even the smoke or the singe. We saw where Daniel was thrown into a lion's den and he was safe. We saw where, where disciples were thrown into prison and then beaten and came out rejoicing, having considered themselves worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We've seen uh, a woman who was promoted as queen who took risk to save her people, and she survived. We've seen people who were discouraged because of opposition, and they succeeded. We've seen over and over how God has accomplished things, how Elijah called down fire and defeated prophets of Baal. And now in Elisha's situation, in each of these cases, we would say, Miraculous, and we would hope for such a thing. But I want to share a couple of other stories. Neither story in the Bible, both historical, one with me as a, not a part of the history, but a part of the observation. There was, and my wife is going to enjoy this story because she's from Texas. Um, there was a... Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, she and her sister took their cousin uh, to a, a Christian concert very close to the story that I'm going to share about. There was a, a group of, of uh, people who were fighting for independence of that place. And they were held up in a, a uh, small adobe um, mission. And um, they didn't have any, many men. 
and they found themselves surrounded by an overwhelming army. And the commander of that place, named William Travis, wrote a letter to his superiors seeking additional troops to defend this place. And the letter went on describing their situation and how it was bleak and how they were overwhelmed with the number of opposition. And he asked for, again, like I said, additional troops. But he said that his intention was to defend this place and that it would be his duty and honor to die for the cause. And as you probably know about the story, um, the opposition stormed all four walls at the same time and took that place. Uh, we know of men like Travis and Bowie and others. Most of the other people we don't know, Davy Crockett and others, who, who gave their lives. And, and we know that the last of the combatants died in the chapel. Much of what we know about that battle was because a non-combatant whose name was Joe, who was a slave, was allowed to be gone. And there's two different versions of what happened. One was that the combatants died in the chapel, and the other version is, is that some prisoners were taken, and the general said, I thought I gave orders that no captives be taken, and they executed them. Whichever version, no one survived. And yet they considered it their honor and their duty to do so. When I was uh, going to high school, I wanted to go to college, and so in order to go to college, you had to take these college courses so you could go to college. And so you had to take at least two years of a language. Well, in seventh grade, I had taken a quarter of Spanish, and it didn't work out well because I could never roll my R's. So I decided, because I wanted to be a lawyer, to take Latin. Because after all, it's a dead language, and nobody speaks it, so I get off the hook there. I just have to read it and write it. And so I took four years of Latin. And as a part of that four years of Latin, um, I, I grew to appreciate and, and not appreciate the Roman Empire. It's good, it's bad, it's ugly, and whatever. And um, some things in life. And so I had the opportunity twice to go to Italy. One in a cruise and whatever, and one we drove around. When you take tours, they oftentimes take you places you don't necessarily want to go, but it's part of the tour. So, for instance, on one cruise, we were in Malta, and I wanted to see where the island where Paul was shipwrecked. But they spent all the time either shopping or taking you to churches, which were generally Catholic churches. And nothing wrong with Catholic churches, but I wasn't interested. And after seeing one or two churches and how they talk about Oh, this dome is the second largest dome in the world, and this is the third largest. No, I, I just, 
got tired of. And I didn't get to, you know, I, I had just briefly saw the island, the whole reason I went. And so every place you go, they would talk about these churches. And even in Rome, there is a temple called the Pantheon. And in, in the Pantheon is where Rome decided to worship all the gods. So whether you worship Zeus or, or Diana, whoever, you could come and worship that god there. And, and it also had this really great dome, and it had a hole in the roof. And it's, a, it's an awesome thing. And my uh, sister-in-law, who went with us, and it tells you you're not supposed to. She lays on the floor, and she takes a picture of the ceiling, and she wasn't supposed to do that, but, you know, she got away with it. But this, it's an immense thing. But they turned this place into a church. Okay, so they have services there on Sunday. I went and got to go inside the Colosseum. To me, no one told me this, but to me, that was the most holy side I'd seen in my entire trip in Italy. Why? Well, yes, people who were called gladiators fought and died, and they would go before the uh, ruling people and the rich, and they would say in Latin, we who are about to die salute you. And they would fight for entertainment. But they would also take Christians. Because Christians were considered to be atheists. Because they didn't believe that the emperor was God. So they were accused of being atheists. And for entertainment, they were killed by either gladiators or lions or other beasts. Men, women, and children died for their faith. I'm not saying I want this because I don't think I'm that brave. But I would much rather echo the words of Travis. It is my honor and my duty, if called to die for the one who died for me. You see, we worship him not because they're more with us than against us, but because he's worthy of it. Yes, there are more with us than against us. One angel decimated Egypt, and they didn't put blood on the doorpost of the land. One angel, when the end of time comes, when it's time for Satan to be bound to hell, will take that, all what we consider all-powerful evil dude, one angel will take him and throw him into hell. Our God is awesome. One is still more powerful than all the opposition. And our God is even more powerful than that. And the scriptures tells us in Hebrews that we are supposed to eliminate the burdens and the obstacles and the encumbrance that so easily entangles us that we might run the race set before us. That there is a cloud of witnesses 
Now, I don't necessarily think that the cloud of witnesses that they're watching us. I think the cloud of witnesses is saying, yes, Daniel escaped the lion's den. And yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaped the fire. God can do that. But yes, the person you don't know about who died in the Colosseum is still yelling, he is worthy of that. He is worthy of my life and your life because he's given you eternal life. Let me finish with Romans, and it says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say all things are good. He says everything works out for good. Now, to give you the example of the history, yes, those men died as combatants in that little um, place called Alamo. But because of their sacrifice, it encouraged and emboldened the rest of the army to say, remember the Alamo. And they won their independence. Maybe our difficulties, maybe our defeat, maybe our death will embolden someone else. So maybe God will use that seemingly defeat to cause greater victory. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called to those who love him. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Hallelujah. I don't have to keep being Joe. Eventually I'm going to look like him. So that the, he would be the firstborn of men, many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. He's going to take us from where we were to where we are, to where he wants us to be, like him. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It doesn't matter the number. It doesn't matter whether we outnumber. It doesn't matter whether the situation just as the attendant said, what shall we do? Trust God. Honor God. Be committed to God. Worship. That's what we are to do, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether we see or don't see that there are more with us than against us. For who he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all. How will he not also give with him freely give us all things? If God gave Jesus, what's he going to hold back? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if you gave your only begotten son, you're going to hold back 10 bucks? You're going, to, you're going to hold back blessings? You're going to hold back things? God, if he gave, what, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Jesus not only died for you, but he is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, my blood covered that. My blood covered that. He or she is justified. Not just excused, justified. You are innocent. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Good question. Who? The outnumbered people of the world? Will tribulation? You see, in, in Christianity today, there seems to be this idea that if God is blessing you, that means you have a perfect life. You're living the best life today. Everything's wonderful and hunky-dory. No one will dislike you. No one will, will criticize you. No, you'll be rich and famous and influential and, and all these things. If that's the case, why is Paul having to write? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He, he lists a whole bunch of all of those bad things that none of us want to have because we all want cushy, nice lives. When these things happen, not that God is against you, God is for you. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You notice, no one ever reads this part. It's always the good stuff. How much God loves us and how much and whatever, and he won't hold of anything. But we are considered like sleep to be slaughtered. But here's a good news. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We, didn't, we don't squeak by. We don't get by by the skin of our teeth. We overwhelmingly conquered those who were against us. Not because of us, but because of him. What shall we do, Master? Honor him. Worship him. Trust him. Obey him. For it is my honor and my duty to do so. For I am convinced, I'm not just persuaded, it's not the preponderance of, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Elisha had an army of angels and chariots of fire to protect. We have something even more awesome. The love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Awesome. These events that are revealed in the Bible give us hope and strength for those who have been successful in their standing 
in their faith with God. But there are also those, nameless men and women, who had the privilege of giving their life for him. And Jesus says, blessed are those who persecute for his name's sake. Notice he didn't say, woe is you. He said, blessed are you. Because Jesus' economy is different than ours. You see, in Jesus' economy, a widow gives a penny, and it's more than everybody else gave in total. In Jesus' economy, not the person who has the most toys, the person who understands who owns it all. And to not fear those who can take our lives, but to fear the one who can take our soul and place it into hell. To understand that we serve a God who is all-powerful. And whether the entire world is against us and we are outnumbered six and a half billion to one, there's still more with us than against us. Because we worship and serve our God and all God's people.